Hello, thriller and adventure fans. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. You've been listening to Into a Canyon Deep by James Lindholm, which Diane Donovan describes as a must-read for any reader who likes their thrillers swift and their characters well-developed. James Lindholm is a marine biologist, which informed so much of his story, and I'm so excited to have him here for a virtual interview. James, thank you so much for being here. All right, great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, I wanted to start off, I think, as everyone usually does for these interviews, uh, hearing a little bit about you and, you know, obviously you wrote this amazing book, which we've all been listening to, but uh, your life in marine sciences as well, how that plays into your daily life. Great. Well, so I'm a native Californian. I uh, grew up south of here and uh, outside of San Luis Obispo. Spent 10 long years away in New England, which, you know, New England's lovely, but I missed California every one of those days I was gone and was very excited to return. Um, and since then, I've been up in the Monterey Bay area um, working at Cal State Monterey Bay, most recently as the head of the research diving program and the chair of the Department of Marine Science. So I've been doing stuff in out and around the ocean since my earliest days and so when it when it came time to write a novel it did it seemed obvious that i should focus that on the ocean as well yeah of course uh what you said since your earliest days you've been involved in marine life and what really ignited that passion in you it really depends on who you ask. Uh, my grandma will tell you that when I was six months old, I ate sand at the beach. And that, that had committed me to a life around the ocean. Uh, I'm not sure how much water that theory holds, but it's an interesting one. Um, other people like to focus on the fact that my mom was a surfer. She used to surf in Hawaii before it was a state. Oh, wow. And my dad was a diver before certification, certification agencies existed. So he taught himself to dive, which is wow. pretty amazing. He built his own underwater housings for old movie cameras and I have old um, film that he filmed underwater in New England as, a, as an early diver in his late teens which is pretty amazing and yeah. in fact my mom and dad's first date was a dive down in Santa Barbara when they were both going to UCSB so there are a lot of reasons that are likely that I was drawn towards the ocean but I think the the truth lies somewhere in between those because somehow before I even was aware the, of all those other facts I just provided you, I love the ocean. Um, I remember hanging out in the garage with my dad's dive gear, just looking at it and smelling the neoprene, which I know sounds odd, but the smell of neoprene, wet, which is what wetsuits are made out of, is you know, sends me back immediately to those earliest days when I was barely taller than a scuba tank, smelling, <laughs> looking at all the gear. And somewhere among there, I developed a lifelong connection to the sea. Yeah, wow. Well. It's one thing to, you know, have this connection, which clearly you have this personal connection with the sea and the ocean, and that's really amazing. But to be a marine scientist, you really have to have a solid understanding of chemistry and math. And, you know, so it's really special that you have this personal connection, but very cool also that you had the dedication and the know-how as well, to some degree, I'm sure, to apply all of the technical skills to this profession as well. So that is very cool. And what does that look like for you as far as, you know, as you said, you're very connected to the ocean, but being having to apply all of these scientific uh, 
studies to what you're doing and to your love for the ocean. Well, so it's interesting, you know, my um, career didn't start, I didn't follow a, a linear path. My path to becoming a marine scientist was circuitous because I didn't have any scientists in my family. My father was a lawyer and I kind of looked at that and thought that's pretty interesting. And so for a long time, particularly as an undergraduate, I was planning to study law and focus figured I would do some kind of marine law. I didn't really know what that meant, but that that struck me as interesting. And then I thought about a, um, I, I was going to do a PhD in the history and philosophy of science because I really enjoyed philosophy and science was interesting to me. And I was gonna do that in Pennsylvania which, you know, I'm a pretty good geographer and I probably could have put two and two together that it's not along the coast and I'm not entirely going to be happy there. And so that I, I moved to Pennsylvania, started that trajectory and realized, nope, that's the bad call. Came back to California, <laughs> applied to grad school again in New England, and that set things off and running. But one of the things that I've been able to do, which makes my job so interesting to me, is really merge the policy th interests that I had during my days as preparing for law school and the science side. So most of the research I do has an application to state government or to federal government or to assist in international entities uh, with management. So I really have hung my hat on this applied um, science hanger, and that's been really interesting. So it allows for, you know, one day I'm underwater, the next time in Sacramento. Then I'm underwater in a different location, and then I've gotten I've been able to go to the to Congress and brief both sides of Congress a couple of times, and I've even wow. been to the White House to help draft an executive order. So those kind of things are exciting in a different way than finding you know encountering a white shark on the seafloor. That's also <laughs> exciting, but they're all it's all exciting in different ways, and it provides a great deal of variety, which I think makes a career really enjoyable. Sure. Well, I wanted to ask you what a day in the life would look like, but it sounds like every day just varies so widely. And that's very cool. As someone who, you know, I'm used to a very regimented schedule. It's really cool to hear about people who are kind of just doing all of the things all the time, all over the place. And that's very cool. Um, you had mentioned how you were able to use two different aspects of your knowledge and research in order to apply it to a lot of the different things that you do. In what ways has your research informed your book? Right, a, a, a great deal, and not always so much in the direct plot, but each of the books, including this one, you see a little bit of the science that Chris Black is doing, which puts him and his team in the position to encounter the bad guys. And a lot of that science is science that I've done. You know, In this book, Chris is on a research vessel right off the coast of Southern Carmel Bay, working with a remotely operated vehicle in a deep water canyon. I work in that canyon every week, either diving or when we're going deeper with a remotely operated vehicle. And so, you know, the, the idea, for those of you who are remembering some of the details, there are screens, you're in a windowless room with screens on a wall and the screens are doing this and the boat's doing something else. And, you know, half the people are gone from the room after about 15 minutes because it gets a little, they get a little woozy. That all, that all happens exactly as it's um, portrayed in the book. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rich and fulfilling opportunity and living this close to some of these features is really exciting. You know, other times you have to travel 10,000 miles to get to a research site. And this time it's five minutes from my house and 15 minutes from my lab wow. to do some of this work, which really makes this place an extraordinary um, place to live and do science. Yeah. Well, I mean, that answer 
made all sorts of questions come up for me. But I guess I'll start with um, talking about the ROV. You were talking about the remotely operated vehicle. And you mentioned, as you said, there was that whole scene where there's uh, Mac and Chris kind of, you're seeing both sides of the of that where the Mac is in the back with the screens and he's working on the vehicle and Chris is, you know, in the action. What was your, what's your experience been like with that? How often do you get to work with ROV Tech? Uh, quite a bit over the course of my career, I think, um, so I'm really interested in questions, understanding how fishes interact with the seafloor and, you know, how they utilize habitat and how that can be used to inform both their our understanding of their ecology, but also how it helps with management. And to do that, you really need eyes on the situation. You know, we have a big fixation in the United States and right now with instruments. It's nice to put instruments in space and look down. It's cool to send out automated things that will record information. But the type of work I like to do, you really need human eyes on the scene. Mm -hmm. And so diving is an extraordinary way to do that. But even those of you who aren't divers will know there's only so deep you can go and so long you can stay there. So we really kind of occupy that shallow area from maybe the, the surface to around 150 feet. We do diving related stuff. But when you want to go deeper, it's easier to put an ROV in the water because you can keep an ROV down, you know, for 24 hours at a time wow. and you're recording video and it's not exactly the same as putting the human eyes down there, but the having the vehicle there recording imagery allows you to get the same categories of information. Sure. And so it's invaluable. Of course, one of the things I tried to bring up in the book too, is that it doesn't always work. You know, <laughs> you get out there and the swell comes up or you get out there in this flat calm and the ROV breaks down. This all happens. Yeah. You know, mixing electronics with salt water is not a great combination. <laughs> um, so the, the tech often lets us down, but it's just the, by virtue of the, the harsh conditions under which we're using it. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you'd also said that, you know, you'd reference being in Carmel and being five minutes away from the diving site that you would go to or 15 minutes away from your lab. Uh, and I'm from Monterey, so it was really cool for me reading your book, seeing all of the places that you reference. You reference a lot of geographical landmarkers, uh, a lot of just restaurants and stores and places that I grew up going to and that were really important to me when I was a kid. Uh, what made you choose to focus so much on the features of Monterey? Was it just, you know, the nature of the story? You felt like you wanted to highlight those things or was there just free promo for my favorite place? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, returning to the categories of books I read, I really like being transported to other places. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are books that I read that are set in, for instance, Wisconsin, which from my vantage point is not a place that I spend a lot of time, but somehow the author makes those books sound, the locale seem so compelling by the smallest detail that I thought if I could draw people in, you know, they all know about Monterey, Monterey because of the aquarium and Carmel because of Clint Eastwood. But if you can give a little extra detail to transport them there a little bit, that that's the goal. And, you know, I know I've tried to set the books in locations that people are attracted to and excited to go, even if they haven't been there, that they're, they want to be drawn there. And so some of the details I provide are hopefully giving um, precisely the kind of connection that you're describing. It's very exciting for me to hear that a local actually <laughs> finds some of those things compelling. Oh, absolutely. I think we might have already said this, but I know we've talked about it at one point, how I just I felt very transported reading your book back to places that have always meant things to me and and how it just made me feel really grounded and connected at, 
to the place that I I mean, I go back every once in a while, but to a place that really I haven't felt so connected to in such a long time. So it really, in addition to reading this wonderful story, it felt like a gift in so many ways. So thank you for that because it was really, really cool. And as you said, it, I felt completely transported. Um, you had mentioned some of the books that you usually read. Um, and so I'm curious what your connection is to the thriller genre. Why choose to write a thriller? Right. So if you, the, the, the dedication page on Indoor Canyon Deep dedicates to Gran, which is actually my mom. This is what she wants to be called. She prescribed <laughs> being called Gran instead of grandma or anything else. So, but it's dedicated to her because she's the one who first introduced me to the spy genre when I was, you know, in elementary school, she introduced me to Robert Ludlum and had me reading literature that was not exactly appropriate, age appropriate, <laughs> but it was very compelling. And I never looked back and so I read a lot of legal thrillers, a lot of spy thrillers, a lot of medical thrillers, but I also read, you know, the greats, the classics. Um, and I think the kind of uh, mosaic of different types of stories has always attracted me. And so I try to infuse the books with some stuff that's maybe not a classic thriller type level of detail and might take you down a little, a little road for a little while, something that's a little different. And um, that that's, I think, that's what I find compelling, and I'm hopeful some other people find that compelling as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that is very cool. Um, okay, to take a little bit of uh, a different path here, because I'm really curious about, you'd mentioned before um, a little bit about your bad guys, and one of the things I really found compelling and thought was really interesting about your book was how you were able to really flawlessly incorporate the perspective of the bad guys without ever revealing until the end who the main bad guy was. What made you choose to do this? And also what was that like writing from that perspective? Right. So I think, you know, the, the origin of some of my interest in writing is that I have encountered some nasty people out there in the world, <laughs> both while I'm doing science and in other cases, uh, as a scientist, I've had my life threatened more than once. Um, wow. you know, it never really rose to the level of too serious, but you know, they were technically threatening my life and I always responded negatively to that. <laughs> and um, it always occurred to me that what would it be like if, you know, these scientists, this party of scientists encounter some bad guys out there in the world and choose not to run away, but stand and defend themselves and protect each other. So, but then I also wanted to, to flesh out the bad guys because these, what it, what it, whatever it means to be bad is very different these days. You know, we are driving along in cars next to people who have done some pretty nasty stuff. You know, we don't, we don't really think about that, but they're out there in our everyday lives. And so what I wanted to do, rather than come up with the evil genius, you know, the, the Bond villain, for instance, I wanted to have credible people who are nonetheless doing some, some things that we would consider to be bad. And sure. so that with each of the categories of bad guy from the top down, I tried to provide enough of insight that, oh, okay, I understand why this person went throughout he or she did. And at least that perhaps that makes the interaction a little bit more compelling. Sure. Well, getting to hear the whole backstory for Joe Rothberg, uh, I feel like really you connect, you you almost empathize with them for the things that they're doing. And I think it adds a lot of really cool nuance to the character, but a, a really interesting insight for the reader. Um, and it was something that I found super cool. Uh, you fully sound like the real life Chris Black. So how much of your own life did you draw upon in writing this book? Are you the real life Chris Black? 
<laughs> well, first thing I would say is Chris Black is taller than me. He's younger <laughs> than me. He has more hair than I do. <laughs> and so I think all, uh, Chris, I am not Chris Black, but I think um, I draw a lot from the experiences I've had and some of my colleagues to, for, to derive some adventures in which to place him. And I think I also, um, some of my own experience in the world and my motivations also find their way into Chris Black too. Um, you know, one of the things I don't talk about that often, but my, my dad was a prosecuting attorney. And so I, and my mom was a juvenile probation officer. So I grew up with a very strong set of kind of right and wrong for lack of a better word. And that kind of righteousness has followed over into Chris Black. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting challenge because he's not a superhero and he has no legal authority whatsoever. But nonetheless, you're gonna, he's, he's put into situations and you have to truly try to understand what his motivation is. Sure. And, you know, that motivation is a little bit like that, that I feel I, you know, I kind of have this, I grew up with this righteous sense of right and wrong, which is, you know, there's a lot more gray now as I get older, but trying to explain why Chris Black would do the things he does um, is one of the more exciting challenges. And a lot of that does derive from my own approach to the world. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's really cool. And I think it's clear what kind of connection you have to the character and in how much detail you were able to bring to his experiences, you know, talking about the life-threatening situations he's been in, his research as a marine scientist, much like yourself. And it, it shows, I think it adds to the level of believability that makes this such a an easy story to read, one of those unputdownable books, as we like to say at CamCat. So I, I think that it's very cool. And it was one of the things that I enjoyed the most was feeling like everybody was very real. Um, cool. Thank you. Yeah, no, of course. Thank you. Um, just out of curiosity, if this were to be made into a movie, what, <laughs> who would you cast as, you know, Chris, Mac, Gretchen, Abby, the, the mains? <laughs> That's a good question. So if you know, you recall, Chris does look a little bit like uh, I was a big X-Files fan. And so <laughs> Chris looks a little bit like David Duchovny, who is, I think, approaching 60 years old now. So he's probably a little too old <laughs> to play Chris Black directly. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of good people out there. Um, Abby doesn't exist as a, all these people are composites. They don't map one-to-one -one onto any of the people in my lives, but sure. they all participate in many of the people that um, I know and have met over the course of my time. You know, there are, there's, and I try to write them from my own imagination, but there are times when I'm watching a movie and I say, oh, you know who that guy, <laughs> that guy's Hendrix right there. And there's a woman on The Walking Dead, for instance, who really uh, reflects uh, Maggie. And so there's a lot of different, um, they're composites, both of people I know and characters I see on the big screen, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's very but cool. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to commit to any particular <laughs> answer because if we get to the place where there's a Chris Black movie, I don't care who plays it and I just want somebody to do it. That would be very exciting. So yeah, that's... we'll take anybody who wants to play. <laughs> If Jason Alexander wants to be Chris Black, that'll work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no one's going to be out here saying no to Jason Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's right. Exactly. Um, okay, to, to veer off path a little bit, uh, you had referenced a couple of the places that you've been in real life that 
uh, are mentioned in the rest of the trilogy. Uh, are there any f- other fun teasers you could give the people who enjoyed listening and reading into a Canyon deep for the other two books in the, or almost three books, right? In the trilogy that is soon to be. Right. A- so there are three already and the f- book four is happening right now. So I think if you've just finished this book, you're going to realize that Chris is a bit fatigued and, um, <laughs> his next trip heads south to South Africa to kind of calm down a little bit and just do some, some honest science on a day-to-day basis, helping some colleagues of his and regrettably or not, um, he will find himself once again in direct interaction with a different group of bad guys, um, in South Africa, that's going to create an up the ante on the stakes considerably. Assuming that Chris survives book two, which we could perhaps assume, um, his next book is actually going to involve a trip to the Galapagos, where he goes and encounters an entirely separate set of baddies, um, again, ripped from the headlines, <laughs> and um, has, to, has to deal with them. I am currently working on book four, which is set in the Middle East, and if I'm fortunate enough to keep this... Um, going, I have plots for book five already written out and I have book six and seven in mind. So the idea is to keep this going as long as people are willing to read them. Yeah. And do you think you'll stick with like the same general storyline, you know, Chris Black, the Chris and Mac adventures? (laughs) Yeah. I think that for a while, I think that's where I'm really comfortable. And I think these you know, I've, I've there, I mentioned earlier that I've read a lot of books and I've read series where there are 28 novels with a team, uh, you know, a, the more or less the same team atro- across those 28 novels. And where I think they've really succeeded is to have each of the individual storylines vary a little bit. You get different approaches on the team angles over time. So I'm hopeful that the core of the team survives to continue to interact over multiple novels. And I would, and I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to explore how those relationships develop over time and new people are going to get added, that kind of thing. Absolutely. No, that's very cool. Um, before we wrap up, you had just mentioned other books that you are interested in reading and other thrillers that you've been reading. What are you reading right now? So right now, if I look over at my, I'm reading it. Well, this is not a spy genre at all. It's something <laughs> called the Corfu Trilogy. It's written by a guy named Jerry Durrell, and it's actually made into a, P- a PBS series. And it's about um, a kid, a British kid in pre-World War II Britain. His family moves to Corfu um, to f- when the father dies. And his family, ha- he becomes a naturalist while in Corfu. And his family are a bunch of lunatics. <laughs> and he ends up writing the first book, and it gets published. And so it's called My Family and Other Animals. And um, and it's it intersperses his natural experience with um, his family's crazy stories. And so at the end of book one, they're they're horrified that he public they got this published in all of their craziness. <laughs> and at the beginning of book two, you hear them ranting about all this. And so he says in the introduction, having been told by every member of the family that they didn't want to see this book, the, a book a sequel, I of course sat down to write the sequel. So <laughs> it's um they're really good and I strongly recommend them. Jerry Durrell, the Corfu trilogy. Noted. Okay, thank you so much. Um okay again, before we let you go, um, how can we find you? How can we stay up to date with what you're doing? So you can find me on my website, um, 
jameslindholm.com. There is um, information there on the novels, also on my scientific activities, the papers that we that result from um, the science, as well as broadly kind of where we're going in the world. You can also um, check me out at csumb.edu forward slash undersea, because that's an imagery archive. And one of the things we're dealing with now is virtual reality. So oh. if you go to csumb.edu forward slash undersea, you're going to see virtually immersive dives. And you can actually immerse yourself in some of the places that Chris Black has gone and will be going to um, right there. If you, you know, the best way to do it is on goggles, but you can also do it on your smartphone. And once you've loaded up, it'll default to um, YouTube and you can look in all directions while divers are swimming transects through kelp forests and all kinds of interesting places. Oh, that is that's so what neat. I would recommend. Absolutely. That is very cool. I will definitely be looking that up when I get home tonight. Um, cool. so one more thing, uh, do you have social media that we can find you on anything you'd like to promote? Well, I think you can find me on Facebook. Um, I think I have an Instagram page. I'm a bad <laughs> social media person. <laughs> I think, you know, it's an interesting challenge because as a scientist, we are keeping an, an, an honest room, a distance from all of that stuff because we're just <laughs> conducting our science. As an author, I know I have to have dip my toe into those things. Right. And I'm still in a state of becoming with my social media presence. So <laughs> I think I would um, refer um, to the website. The website it's a good old school way to see the books, <laughs> to buy the books, and to see some of the activities. And I think in Facebook, you could see some of the posts that chronicle both the, uh, the things that Chris Black is going to do, as well as some of my own activities. James, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It was great talking to you. And thanks to everybody who tuned in and listened to the book. Into a Canyon Deep is available on our website in audiobook, ebook, and print formats. Just go to camcatbooks.com. You can find CamCat Unwrapped on all major podcasting sites or watch us on our YouTube channel. And make sure you follow us on social media at CamCatBooks. Thank you so much for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name's Jess, and I'll see you next time here on CamCat Unwrapped. <laughs>